0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SUP China. Subscribe to SUP China's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This show is supposed to feature former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, but he had to cancel last minute because he lost his voice. A lot of talking from his book tour. But we will reschedule and put that out as soon as we can. Meanwhile, I reached out to my colleague at China, Chang Che. uh, Che Chang in Chinese. Chang has been our business editor, but has been shifting his focus uh, to do more editing and to uh, work on feature writing, which he's excellent at if you haven't seen some of his work. He was recently published in The New Yorker, in fact after uh, spending the holidays here in the U.S., he decided, what was it, in late February, Chong, uh, to fly back to China? Yep, early March. Early March, yeah, so fly back to China and endure quarantine. Little did he know. uh, What was waiting for me on the other side? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, I had a very genteel lockdown with an extra freezer that I bought like in February 2020 and stocked it full of everything I could possibly need. Bought a 50-pound bag of beans, two 50-pound bags of flour. I was good. But but you poor guy. Anyway, you've been (laughs) on the ground in Shanghai experiencing that whole thing at first hand. What we've only been reading about uh, the chaotic lockdown, you know, dynamic clearing in response to this uh, outbreak of the Omicron variant. Chong, anyway, welcome to Seneca. I should have said that earlier, but welcome to Seneca, and uh, great to have you on, finally.
1: Thanks for having me, Kaiser. You know, I've always dreamed of being on the Seneca podcast. I thought about it as like a checkpoint of my career, but, you know, fate has a funny way of doing things because I was not expecting to be here for, you know, to talk about this.
0: Yeah, sorry I gave you such short notice, but uh, you're the perfect person to talk about it because you are on the ground. So you flew back in early March, you went into quarantine, and then what?
1: I went into quarantine for what was supposed to be three weeks, which ended up being two for some reason. And then I, I came out and that first day, I, I came out on March 27th and I had one day of freedom before uh, the city lockdown in the two-part lockdown, which started on the 28th.
0: Was it Pushi first or Pudong first?
1: It was Pudong first for the first four days.
0: And you were in Pudong?
1: I'm in Pushi So I, I did have an extra oh, okay. four days to, to prepare everything.
0: Okay. And so were you able to prepare how much did you uh did you prep? Did you prepare for just the four days or for expectations of a longer lockdown so
1: you know just to give a little bit of context for for listeners, Shanghai had been logging really high case counts as early as early March, so when I was in oh really when I was in quarantine, the city had already been in what I could call like a soft lockdown. It was not as stringent as other cities like Shenzhen
0: or Jilin yeah
1: yeah exactly but it had already been under this kind of batch lockdown where individual uh when cases came up the neighborhood would be locked down for I think 14 days and as long as your neighborhood didn't register a case you could move about semi-freely
0: so that was like Beijing like Beijing is exactly right now, right? They're yeah that on a xiaochu by xiaochu basis exactly
1: so. xiaochu by xiaochu basis. So when I came out, there was a notice that the city was going to go into a more severe lockdown, which is this two-part lockdown. And it began in Pudong for the first four days. And then it was supposed to end in Pudong and switch to Puxi. Uh It was very clear that that didn't happen.
0: Right, right, right.
1: So when, when we started in Puxi, our lockdown began on April 1st. Pudong was still locked down. Hmm. In terms of how I prepared, you know, it was funny that you asked because the lines on that day were, uh, you know, on the first four days were crazy. I mean, the 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 grocery yeah, yeah. stores were just completely bought out, you know. And and you got a sense of what Chinese people like and don't like. You know, you saw like a bunch of potatoes were left, and <laughs> you know, you you there was like a you know celery. Like people didn't really buy celery, but you know, I just remember. People in front of me just buying, just bulk ordering, like the entire, uh, you know, selection. I remember being at the egg counter and the woman in front of me ordering four hundred eggs. Oh, jeez! And I just thought to myself, just you know, wh- what are you doing? Are you trying to eat a hundred eggs a day? Like, and I think it just didn't dawn on me that there was there was this kind of sense among some people who are maybe more experienced than I that don't necessarily take the government's word for it you know if they say for <laughs> four days it could go longer and it just it didn't dawn on me and so I had prepared the as to answer your question I, I prepared for four days
0: <laughs> uh you sucker <laughs> oh man that sucks uh so I see that you're you're famished now and barely able to speak now no, uh, so how are you doing now how, how what, what, what are things like now? And how have you endured have you been getting shipments of, of food and, and stuff?
1: So I'm doing okay. And the reason is, is quite simple. It's because over the days, there has been a gradual easing of, of food orders. Uh-huh. And, and one means of accessing food is through this, uh, which has kind of emerged in the, in the days when this lockdown became an indefinite lockdown, is this idea of group buying. Oh, right. In which the neighborhood kind of clumps together into groups and basically goes straight to like a wholesaler and ask them to ship food over it's sporadic but and and I think you know what's really important to stress is, is is my situation is 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 I think not necessarily representative of of what's going on in Shanghai I mean a lot of places a lot of people in the city don't have the buying power to go right people who don't live in neighborhood compounds don't have that luxury and there are people who have been locked down longer than I was, right? So anybody who was in Pudong was locked down four days longer, if not more, if their if their compound had registered cases. And, you know, those people would have been going without food potentially for 14, you know, 20 days.
0: Yeah. So I mean, the really big issues that are, are trending on social media seem to be obviously the availability of food. But also things like children being isolated from their parents. Uh, people unable to go to emergency rooms for other non-COVID-related emergencies. Uh, of, of course, there's been quite a bit on the plight of migrant workers who, as you say, they don't live in compounds. They, and sometimes they're locked down in the places that they were working, You know, on the sites that they were working, uh, in very, very bad conditions. Uh, so what are you hearing right now? What, what's the mood in Shanghai? I mean, there, if to 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 read, you know, Western media reports, it, it's it's like Shanghai is seething. It's on the it's on the brink of you know uprising. This is the that that Chernobyl moment that everyone's been waiting for. This is a gigantic threat to Chinese Communist Party legitimacy. Uh, what are you sensing there? Is it is it an exaggeration or uh, is is that is that true?
1: You know, that's a good question, Kaiser. And I think. I was just alerted like today of the massive misinformation that's that's going on, you know, on Twitter and and all of these social media sites. You know, I think the range of experiences in Shanghai really varies. So there's yeah. extreme cases. I mean, whenever you you make a severe lockdown the way that China has decided to do in Shanghai, you're gonna get very extreme. Uh, cases, right? You're going to get people who are, you know, starving, you're going to get people who, you know, there may have been suicides, there were certainly people who did not have access to medical care, like important, necessary medical care, and who've passed away. Um, Those are anecdotes that that I've, you know, read and heard of. But I think, you know, the best way I think to sum it up is that Shanghai's policies have slowly become more and more absurd over time. Uh-huh. In the uh-huh. beginning, you know, in the period in which it was a two-part lockdown where everyone was locked down for four days, China, I mean, Shanghai knees were relatively, and not just Shanghai knees, anyone who was in Shanghai, I think, um, was relatively compliant. In fact, you know, I remember in the first four days, just the absolute silence from the city. I mean, it was just staggering. I mean, the idea of having 26 million people all comply. I mean, coming from the United States, you know that that is just unheard of. And I just remember being just struck by how cooperative uh, the city was. But it became very clear early on that the authorities had not thought around this situation. They did not think of all the externalities that would emerge from extending the lockdowns indefinitely. Right. The very basic question of food distribution, right, that the private sector once basically handled 100% needed to be replaced by the government. There needed to be... Medical services um, for people who needed medical care, people who need to give birth in the period of time that yeah, has been going yeah. on in the lockdowns, um, you know. And as I said, migrant workers don't have the same access to neighborhood committees um, and and neighborhoods who can sort of you know make their voice better heard. So all of these externalities were not considered, and so the the situation in Shanghai, while diverse is deteriorating slowly there was a case of a there was a document um, that I shared with you earlier of a neighborhood committee worker who was writing about her experience
0: yeah, that was fascinating yeah. and
1: you also get that sense of just things slowly going out of control
0: yeah, yeah The real foot soldiers, as you say, have been these neighborhood committees the the juhui or. For most of our listeners, I think these are very familiar. A lot of us have spent time in China, but I I suppose there are probably some who don't know what these neighborhood committees are. And um, maybe you can explain what they do in ordinary times and how they are mobilized in these extraordinary times. So that's a good question. And I I actually, to
1: uh, to be honest, I don't entirely know what they did in ordinary times. My initial (laughs) thinking is that I mean, so so neighborhood committees are in charge of probably, you know, a, a cluster of compounds, of, of neighborhoods, of specific xiaoqus um, or like, you know, yeah. uh, the kind of the the smallest unit of residential life in Shanghai. And I think in normal times, you know, they would be basically in charge of like, when if there were emergencies you know people in the residents could, could could contact the the Huys, um, the neighborhood committees were connected to other sources of power so they were kind of your your sort of go to your initial contact for anything that might happen and i'm sure that they also work with you know public security and 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 others so i think that was what they did in normal times In pandemic times, they've basically become the frontline workers of the pandemic prevention. Right. So they are the ones who ensure that we get tested every day or, you know, we get Mm -hmm. tested however frequently we do now. And they're the ones who collect the tests and, you know, log them. And they send the data to this, uh, you know, basically like the CDC of China where they do, Mm -hmm. you know, where where they find, uh, where they count how many uh, cases are positive that day. They're also the group that handles all of the externalities that have basically emerged during these lockdown times. And and that is where the fundamental tension, I think, has emerged in this city. That is, this tension where the externalities such as, you know, lack of food, lack of medical Mm -hmm. supplies, Mm -hmm. um, you know, separation of, of children of their COVID positive parents, all of these are being sent to the neighborhood committees, and they are powerless to do anything about it,
0: yeah, yeah, I can imagine so I guess if if people are having trouble imagining who these people are, if you've been to China and if you've lived there at all, you know the sort of older matronly woman walking around with a red armband on her arm and getting you know sticking her nose in other people's business, always sort of like keeping track of who you're dating or <laughs> that was the the Jiu Weihui representative. So Ch- Chang, one of the, the big questions is what accounts for the low vaccination rates among the elderly in Shanghai? I mean, that seems to be the the, the chief or one of the chief problems here. Uh, I've heard that it's only about 65 percent for the elderly compared to 89 percent is the nationwide vaccination rate. That's two doses with over 90 percent having had at least a single dose. But older people is this, and this sounds very much like what happened in, in Hong Kong. Uh, So what do you think explains why there was such a low rate of vaccination in Shanghai among the elderly? So I think
1: I'm going to be basically taking from an article that I read in The Economist about this question, which is basically that, and first of all, it's a fantastic question. And I think it really, it's the biggest hurdle that China needs to overcome in the coming months to basically not have a repeat of what's happening in Shanghai. and. I, it's not the uh, only one, but it's one of the biggest ones. And I think the reasoning is partly, I think part of it is that the population of the elderly was not a part, it wasn't a big part of the Chinese vaccine vaccination uh, studies. And so I think there was a general skepticism among the elderly about whether vaccinations, um, and of course, you know, COVID is... Uh, especially dangerous and deadly to the elderly, and so I think right. there was just a fear among the elderly more so than the young that the vaccination could make them sick and there's also I think just rhetoric about you know western vaccines or you know Chinese rhetoric that is I think also contributed to some sort of skepticism around um, whether the vaccines uh especially if they have this kind of you know if elderly mix this idea of vaccines with the west and they they may be skeptical, but my sort of confidence on this. Wait, so investment...
0: you're saying that they're they're skeptical because they think that vaccines are a Western idea, or or they are skeptical of the Chinese versus the Western vaccines?
1: I think that they think that this general idea of vaccines is suspect, but that's something oh, okay. that I am not confident about.
0: Okay, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, who can know? I mean, I don't, I don't think there's been systematic research done on this. But I'm just sort of struck by the parallels between Shanghai and Hong Kong. One of the things that, you know, I I, I thought might be a, a major factor in this is simply that China was kind of a victim of its own success, is that the the threat of, of COVID just didn't loom very large. I mean, they could read, just like the rest of us, the very, very, very low case rates in China all the way up until uh, the end of last year, uh, until the emergence, really, of the Omicron variant. Uh, There was very very little threat and very little incentive to get vaccinated because, you know, it was like being vaccinated against being struck by lightning. It was just so rare.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think that's definitely one aspect of it, because I think, you know, one thing that we know China does well is mass mobilization, right? And if they wanted to, I think that they could easily bring up the vaccination rates of the elderly. But like you said, it's not, it wasn't the primary priority, Given that yeah. COVID, uh, the cases were so low. I also think you know, your, your point about China being a victim of their success is interesting in another sense, which is that I think that China had convinced itself in April 2020 that a really hard, severe, rapid lockdown was the way to go in handling covid And I think that the situation and the circumstances have changed over time. You know, for one, the the, uh, virus has changed, right? The virus virality, the strain is different, the severity is different. And I think that that approach, this kind of the old 2020 toolbox of pandemic prevention, which includes mass testing, frequent mass testing, isolation, all of these tactics, and, and of course, severe lockdowns, they were basically applied to Shanghai April 1st. And I think that that's one of the problems that we're seeing now.
0: Just an outdated solution to a very new problem. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't any longer possible to just do systematic contact tracing. It was, and uh, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I think it, it was, was just the that the idea of having this policy, it was always more nuanced than the narrative that China had presented it to itself. It was always more nuanced in that cities are different. It's nuanced in the fact that, you know, Different cities have different needs. And, you know, there are certain kinds of externalities that emerge that need to be handled by the neighborhood committees. So by putting that sort of cookie cutter f- toolbox into Shanghai, w- we've seen basically a lot of a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, I mean, how much of the decision to implement these this style of uh, approach was really just about people wanting to toast Xi Jinping's line? Uh, about how, you know, the zero COVID policy must be continued without change, how much of it was based instead uh, on like a sober assessment of the actual downside of what might happen if you took a less draconian approach? I mean, assuming for the moment that it did make sense to try to lock down, uh, you know, an entire city of 25, 26 million people. I mean, it's not, it's not entirely without, you know, reason. I mean, we need some perspective on the sheer scale of, of, of the threat, right? Allowing Omicron to spread unchecked, it would represent a pretty serious threat. I mean, look, we've all been told about the number of ICU beds per 100,000 people. In China, it's only about 4.6. I've seen estimates from everything from about 3.7 to 4.6 beds per 100,000 people, whereas in the US, it's 34 beds per 100,000 people. So, you know, nine or 10 times the, the number per 100,000. And there's, you know, the fact that those ICU beds are concentrated in first-tier cities and, and medical infrastructure and resources are even worse in the surrounding areas. And the concern ultimately is not about Shanghai itself. It's about what happens if Shanghai bleeds out right. to the surrounding countryside, densely populated places with not anywhere close to the kinds of medical resources that are available in neighboring provinces of Zhejiang, in, in, in Jiangsu, and in Jiangxi, and Anhui. Uh, that would be disastrous, right? So the idea was that, you know, Shanghai needs to make the sacrifice to prevent something truly, truly terrible from happening. I, I mean, it it makes some sense to me. I'm not saying that, that the execution was good. Of course, it was, it was terrible. But it's a little bit like the Afghan war. I mean, there are a lot of people coming out to, you know, to criticize the, the way the, the, the final evacuations were carried out or carried out poorly. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the the, the policy of withdrawal was wrong
1: absolutely i think um you know you're right when so so my view is this if people when if people are talking about this as a a knock on zero covid policy in general in the abstract sense i i mean i don't actually have a v- strong view about that in fact i think that china you know can still follow a zero covid policy i think in the abstract what's happening in shanghai is really not about Zero COVID versus you know a, a different policy. I think what's really like you said, it's it's about the execution. There's a range of executions that could have happened in Shanghai while still maintaining zero COVID. You could have had you know I, I had this uh, list that I I recently wrote on Twitter where I just mentioned you know a couple of things that could have still happened in Shanghai that could have prevented what what was what is happening now under zero COVID. For example, we could have been had more time to prepare for the lockdown, we could have had an expectation that there was a longer, uh, potentially an indefinite or a longer lockdown so that people could prepare better. There could have been a plan to Mm -hmm. secure food, there could have been a slightly, there could have been, you know, asymptomatic cases could have stayed at home and not gone to quarantine facilities. And that still would have been considered a zero, a zero COVID policy, if you take zero COVID to just mean to basically minimize as much cases as possible. I think there's a, really important point about this that I want to make, which is that some people say that Shanghai needs to take the pain in order for the rest of the country to uh, to triumph over COVID. The th- The truth is though, that when you have, you know, these externalities like that I mentioned, such as food and medical supplies, all of these essentials in the city are important for zero COVID. When you have the kind of disorder and unrest and unease from city from the people of shanghai when they don't have you know the food and the medical supplies first of all you get a public that starts to stop cooperating with you right we get this we have this sense in uh uh, we got the sense from the diary of the neighborhood committee worker where you could just sense that she was losing control of the situation because the residents were pissed at her you know and that kind of anger comes with poor transparency, with, with not thinking around the policies. And, and so I think you know we need to stop change, having this narrative where the choice is between a zero COVID policy and eating. It has to be, right. you have to have people eat and you have to have people well-fed. You have to have people have access to medical supplies if they need it. You have to have parents and children together and families together in order to have a full effective zero COVID.
0: Right, right, right. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I wonder, though, if, if there's something about the Shanghainese that makes their reaction different to what you might have seen in other major Chinese cities. I mean, they have never exactly been known for just sort of taking things lying down. Uh, I mean, they they are always sort of the first to get mad on a plane that's delayed. They're always... Uh, they, they <laughs> I'm, I'm invoking a, a regional stereotype here, but I mean, I, I, I've been around the Shanghainese enough to know. They can be pretty feisty, and and I I, I if I you know we told that that this this thing we're gonna I mean there there's places in China where people would be a lot more quiescent about it. Let's just say that.
1: I think so. I mean, I think that's possible, and I also think that that China. I mean, Shanghai has more voice just generally. Yeah. In in the international sphere, you know, not just because there's foreigners here. But also, because just because Shanghai is just more affluent, they have more of a a say, which is why I think it's important to to note places that may not have a say, right? So places like Jilin, um, you know, we haven't actually, there's a lot of cities that have been locked down that have not had as much exposure in the Western media. Um, And I think that's just a testament to this kind of sad reality that these kinds of centers of power and influence um, do get a say a little bit more.
0: So, you know, Shenzhen, it went really well, right? I mean, I think that's generally the consensus is lockdown was not only executed well, but also seems to have been effective in in flattening the curve, as it were. Uh, What what was different about Shenzhen? Do you you know?
1: So Shenzhen was locked down um, before Shanghai. Right. And they were locked down, I think, for seven days. Mm -hmm. And then they were basically let go. So the answer is, I don't know. Okay. The attempt at an answer is that I think that there were just a a, a level. I think, first of all, one potential factor is that the situation in Shanghai was actually worse than it seemed. Uh. Because in the sort of soft lockdown phase... They weren't testing everybody. And so there were probably positive cases in the population that just was not accounted for. And I think this is what happened. The reason why the policy sort of slipped from sensible to kind of farcical at in, on April 1st when the lockdown went indefinite was because authorities were just shocked at how many cases they were seeing. And they were kind of surprised. And I think there was also a sense that there was more of a sense in Shanghai that authorities were basically racing against the clock than in shenzhen
0: mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of this could have been, been solved by them not treating asymptomatic cases in the way that they have i mean treating every positive case whether asymptomatic or not uh you know but by, by moving them to quarantine centers and stuff that has to be extraordinarily disruptive to people and it seems to me pretty unnecessary now granted Shanghai homes are not so big that everyone who is asymptomatic and, you know, with family members who aren't can be effectively isolated within a home. But I think, you know, they could have approached it with a little more granularity, left it to the discretion of individual neighborhood committee workers to decide, okay, this person can be effectively quarantined within their within their home. Uh, that, that seems like a, a, a huge piece of it. The other, of course, is the food piece of it. Yeah, I mean that—that's my my sense of, from from reading a lot of the reports that I've read, and I've I've looked at a lot of these sort of first person accounts, and that seems to be one of the, the the common conclusions that a lot of people are coming to.
1: Let me just add another thing, which is I think another, you mentioned discretion, which I think is absolutely important. I think one of the lessons of the Shanghai lockdowns is that neighborhood committees needed to have a certain amount of discretion because they were the ones who were basically receiving all the signals. All the pain points of the citizens during the lockdown was first heard by the neighborhood committees, but they didn't have any power to solve even extreme scenarios, even cases where Somebody needed dire medical attention was not solved because neighborhood communities didn't have the power. So I think discretion is important. I think there's also a sense that after the lockdowns turned indefinite, there was a shift in power. Mm -hmm. Beijing had come and the vice premier, Sun Sun Lan, had basically taken over the management of the city. And as the center of power shifted to Beijing, first of all, things got a lot worse and, you know, that there's, that fits into a lot of the stereotypes of Shanghai and Beijing and whatnot. But as the power shifted, there was also an ambiguity in who was in charge of what, I think. And I think that is also part of the reason why you had, you know, these extreme cases where nobody really knew what to do, right? There was nobody who knew you know, who to report to, I think, because the direct reports were in flux. And yeah. that shift led to these kinds of, like, vacuums and voids of power. When, you know, some when citizens needed somebody to respond most, there was nobody there.
0: What well, you said about discretion, the, the the problem is sort of systemic, right? Discretion, it means responsibility and responsibility means culpability, ultimately. So if Somebody makes the wrong call, uh, their ass is on the line in a way that that if they were just following orders, it wouldn't necessarily be. So uh, I I can sort of understand why in in the Chinese system there would be a lot of reluctance either to have that kind of 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 you know, responsibility devolve onto you. <laughs> Uh, as a neighborhood committee worker yeah it's 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 pretty i, I tough. think
1: theoretically that's the case, but in the practical moment, you know we're living in 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 dire you know there's dire situations here in shanghai right somebody elderly person you know faints and needs a medical attention at that point the the neighborhood committee needs to know what to do, and they need to have the means to do it right but I think you're right in the sense that when When you organize a system, you know, in pre-pandemic times, you may think twice about, you know, whether, uh, you know, empowering, you know, or or offering discretion to neighborhood committees would give them more responsibility. But I think the problem in in Shanghai is that the neighborhood committees are already responsible for everything there because they are the ones who are collecting the results and doing all the testing. And so they're the, the people who are interacting with residents the most. They have all the information, and they are—they do have a lot of the burden, but they just—they don't have the power to fully, you know, address all the problems.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely agree. How how much reputational damage do you think China takes from this? Uh, for you know, it had this reputation for having handled the outbreak of coronavirus—not the initial outbreak, of course—but handled the, the spread of the virus pretty well. Uh, it was quite a point of pride for many Chinese people, and certainly something that they often compared to the, the, the poor handling of it in other countries, and especially to the United States. How much damage has been done to China's reputation, to the party leadership's reputation, do you think, uh, internationally, because of Shanghai? I don't know how to quantify that.
1: I think a lot. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I, I think a lot. I think the damage is done and i think that the narratives of the two countries will dive, diverge even further because china is going to come out of this provided that things don't get completely out of hand which it might but provided it doesn't china will come out of this saying that they've managed to hand you know to beat the pandemic again that's what they will say and of course and this is not a knock on zero covid i'm you know there's a lot of nuances as i've been trying to uh, discuss with you about the execution of zero COVID here. Um, I, I don't, I'm, you know, I think that you can one can reasonably be supportive of a zero COVID zero tolerance policy, but um, you know, I think that there are still lessons to learn from Shanghai. Yeah. But I think that the narrative in the Chinese government at the very top is going to be more simplistic than that. I think it's going to be we've conquered the pandemic again. Yeah, we've of course, vanquished the Omic- omicron, and I think that's going to be increasingly less credible to Western audiences who are paying attention to you know, foreigners' accounts of of Shanghai. I think if this did not happen in Shanghai, if it happened somewhere,
0: you know, somewhere in the middle of the country... Where there wasn't a huge foreign population, yeah. I
1: think it would have been... uh, I think it would have been less covered and the the Gulf perhaps would have been less severe in the sense that China would have been able to control the narrative. But now in Shanghai, China is not going to be able to control the narrative of what comes out from here to the West. There's too many foreigners who live here, and they're letting people know what's happening. So I think this is an important turning point for China. I think China's going to have to reckon with a really big dent in their credibility if they decide to that the narrative coming out of this is that we vanquished the Omicron virus in Shanghai.
0: So that's true. And I, I know that that narrative is going to really grate on a lot of people. But at the same time, You've noticed for sure there's been a lot of schadenfreude over this, right, uh, in the West. There's, there's a lot of sort of, you know, Absolutely. you're getting your comeuppance. I mean, uh, Anna Ashton, who's not the Asia Society and was for, for many years at the U.S.-China Business Council, she wrote in a tweet, I-, I would like there to be a lot more obvious empathy for people in Shanghai and less of the weird excitement that this could be bad for the party. Uh, that's that's exactly how I feel about it. I mean, it, it's like once again, we're not centering often in the, in the Western coverage. We're only sort of using the suffering of people instrumentally as a way to sort of try to discredit the party or to you know to get this this kind of almost kind of suffering porn thing. Uh, Absolutely,
1: yeah. and and Kaiser, I'm just going to stop you there because I I completely agree with you, and that's why I'm not making this into a question of zero COVID because a lot of the people who have shortened Freud are saying. You know, this has been the reality of zero COVID all along. I, I think that there's a credible argument that China did a r- the right thing, you know, to, in, in terms of implementing the zero COVID policy for from 2020 mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. you know, now. And I think that there's a defensible argument for zero COVID. But what I'm saying here and the criticisms that I'm making have to do with that execution.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I get you.
1: And and that's very much, you know, that can be an internal critique, you know, from the inside as much as an external critique yeah. of Jordan
0: Freud. so beijing may be in for a shanghai style lockdown i was just talking to our colleague anthony in beijing he said that everyone's a bit worried about that and they're stocking up just in case but already we're seeing you know the shelves emptying what should beijing be learning from the whole shanghai experience what are some of the, the key lessons that beijing should take away in case it has to go into this sort of a lockdown as well i mean i've got plenty of family there and they're telling me uh, I mean, some of them, my my sister in law, and then my parents in law, at uh, at various points had their own chauchus locked down, but it was only for three or four days at a time, and they they said they were extremely good about you know making sure everyone had food, making so what 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 should they be learning?
1: So the first thing I think is that communication is so important, yeah, for sure, because the Shanghai people you know communication has has really broken down. I mean, I think a lot of people are just getting info from rumors um, and and it hasn't been you know knowing having residents know what they're in for is so important for something like a, a lockdown where you need the cooperation of everybody in the city. I also think that the biggest lesson of Shanghai is that you need to balance, in order to have an effective zero COVID policy, you have to balance COVID cases with other circumstances of suffering and pain. You have to balance the food supply and distribution. You have to balance the medical supplies. You have to have humane policies of treating those with cases with children. All of these are important in a holistic, comprehensive zero-COVID plan. Because if you have a population that is jittery, agitated, that are willing to protest, then you create a situation where cases can multiply.
0: Hmm. What, what do you think uh, are the lessons to be taken away when you stand back and look at sort of a comparative lens and look at the United States and other big populist countries, Brazil or Russia, uh, in, in their responses?
1: Well, obviously uh I am no defender of the way that the United States handled the pandemic. But I will say this. I think one thing that I've learned about my experience here is that the US and China have very different kinds of governments is obvious, right. but they have very different sort of approaches to people's agitations because in the U.S., I just feel that everything is the U.S. is very sensitive to people's voices. You know, like signals of duress get sort of amplified very fast mm-hmm. in the social media, and then you know all of a sudden Biden comes out in the press sec- like in the press conference and has to address it immediately. In China, you know, there's just One, there's a sense that people don't have a way to congregate with each other. I mean, I I remember it was striking that this is the first time that I've got to know my neighbors. Wow. Everybody is, you know, sort of in their own silo. And you get this in the very beginning of this lockdown, you know, you saw all of these accounts, but they were all individual accounts. There wasn't this mass Twitter mob, or, you know, there wasn't this like major collective anguish. And I, I just think... I think China has sort of organized its government in a way that it is so good at mobilizing toward a single goal, but in that approach, it can be myopic at times and avoid other signals because the government is just not set to be open to various inputs while they're mobilizing toward a single goal a really great example of this in Shanghai right now is that the government is insanely competent about testing. I mean, they tested the entire city in the span of like 5 hours. That's 25 million tests in one in in a span of five, in a span of 5 hours and the results came, you know, in within days. I mean, nowhere in the world could that possibly happen. Right. Besides China. Right, right, right. But at the same time, a lot of people were running out of food and there was no response. You know, there was nobody who had to answer for it. And in the US I think you know they have the opposite problem. They they will they would answer for it, but they would also have to answer for a lot of things like if somebody said that you were born in Kenya and you know you had you had to respond.
0: <laughs> so I mean how how bad is the food situation right now for people around you? I mean, you, I know you were able to organize this swango, but what are some of the worst stories that you've heard? Are there people who have actually gone days without eating at all? Is that where we're at? I am sure. I have not heard it, but I am sure that in a
1: population of 26 million people, having been locked down for many pe- for 21 days, I, I'm sure that there's people that have gone without food. Uh, the stories that I've heard, the extreme ones, are just that you know people have been left on their last batch of vegetables, or people have been subsisting on rice for many days. Those are the accounts that I've heard. Okay,
0: no one has actually starved to death, as, as, as far as you you know.
1: I don't know. No one that that I know, but uh, you know, death has been an important consequence, a significant consequence of these lockdowns. Yeah, no, for sure. Not necessarily just in food, but just in medical care. Yeah,
0: yeah. Again, I mean, those are the stories that we hear most often because they're really poignant. About the pregnant woman who, because she doesn't have like a PCR test that's you know within the last X number of hours, hasn't been admitted to an emergency room. That kind of thing, right? Somebody dying yeah. from asthma, uh, be unable to get into a hospital. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, these are these are you know obviously terribly terribly tragic stories. So, all in all, what has this told you about China's vaunted state capacity when it comes to actually mobilizing in situations like this? On the one hand, you see, you know, testing overnight, practically of a population of twenty six million people which is almost unthinkable. I mean, it's, it seems to speak very, very highly of state capacity. But the inability to deliver, you know, 2,000 calories a day to residents, that strikes me as, as a gigantic failure. What, What's, what's the, 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 the score at the end of the day?
1: I'm not sure about the score, but I, I think that the lesson is that China has— over time am- amassed a government that is really, really good at achieving a single defined goal and not very good at responding to other signals that can potentially get in the way of it. Yeah, And I think that over time, you know, these things matter. Um, they, you know, we're going to see this not just in pandemic prevention, you know, we can see this in any kind of mass mobilization that the government is currently setting. So potentially, you know, in technology, uh, you know what it 's important, I think, to think about those costs, right? who falls through the cracks in a mass mobilization movement? Mm-hmm. I think this you know this is a question that we can ask in Chinese throughout Chinese history right right, and it 's one that I think is has become sadly relevant again, and it 's also the important lesson of that is to see what that means for the future. And the method, you know, as a sort of academic exercise would be to look at a mass mobilization movement, such as, you know, tech superiority, self-sufficiency, I don't know, data security, and, and see, you know, what are they missing, right? What, what's, what are the externalities that they have basically put their blinders on? Because I think that's, that's what is a fundamental aspect of Chinese power that I've learned here, which is that in order to basically sharpen your vision towards a goal... Or in order to sharpen your mind and vision towards a goal, you also have to narrow it.
0: Yeah. So you end up missing out, like you say, so many people who fall through the cracks. And in the West, we're fond of saying that it's ultimately the fate of those people uh, against whom a government's performance needs to be judged, right? So, uh, you know, it's Mm -hmm. how it treats its most vulnerable people. And clearly, in this case, Shanghai and uh, to the extent that Beijing is responsible for it, Beijing can certainly be blamed when we look at the plight of migrant workers, for example, people who are truly vulnerable already, you know, who already exist in a state of, of real precarity, and then when something like this happens, the state really fails them. Anyway, anyway I'm sorry that your first turn on Seneca had to be such a depressing topic, but <laughs> I'm really glad that we had you on the ground there yeah. to, to, to witness this. I think this is really valuable, and I... I uh I imagine that we'll be talking about this a lot uh, going forward. Uh, Chong, thanks so much for taking the time uh, and for staying up so late to to be with me. Let's move on now to recommendations. But first, before we do that, just a quick reminder, the Syndica podcast is powered by China, And if you want to support the work that we do here with the podcast and with the other shows in the network, the best thing that you can do is subscribe to our China access. If you... uh, it really helps to support all the work that we do here. So please check out the newsletter. It's fantastic. And uh, let's move on to recommendations. So Chang, what do you got for us?
1: So I actually have a great recommendation. I was I was just during this lockdown, started watching um, Tokyo Vice oh, yeah. on HBO Max. Yeah. It's the uh, film or sorry, drama, dramatic adaptation of uh, the book Tokyo Vice written by Jake Adelstein, who used to be a crime reporter for the Mainichi Shimbun. Um, and, uh, he's just an incredible inspiration. Um, you know, uh, I have from my just ties in Japan. Um, I I've just really admired his work, um, and just su- really inspired by the fact that his, you know, a nonfiction writer can potentially, uh, you know, land a film or a drama or a TV series—that's uh, really inspiring for me. Yeah.
0: Hey, so yeah, Jake is actually—he's really cool. I mean, we're we're friends on Facebook, and uh, I've known him for many years, just sort of indirectly. Uh, I know he's friends with Pete Hessler and a bunch of other people, but uh, pr- pretty amazing what he's he's done. I mean, really, he's been sort of the best reporter on the Yakuza. Uh, he, he's just gotten really into it. He, yeah. he knows it just...
1: Because he goes where no Japanese wants to go. Right,
0: right, right. It's it's pretty amazing. All right, great recommendation, Tokyo Vice. Uh, my recommendation is for the Steve F. Uvar-Hazy Center, uh, Stephen F. uvar Hazi Center, which is kind of annexed to the National Air and Space Museum. It's in Chantilly, Virginia. It's this enormous... Uh, I guess a former, you know, these two two gigantic hangars. Um, last weekend, my my best friend Drew and his son flew to D.C. from Madison. I drove up to D.C. with my boy Johnny, who's 16, and we did this kind of father-son museums thing from Thursday to Sunday. Uh, we went to you know Manassas and a bunch of the Smithsonian museums. Uh, but on on Saturday, we we spent the afternoon at the Air and Space Museum, which is just amazing. They actually have the Space Shuttle Discovery there. There's a Concorde. Uh, there's all sorts of, of space memorabilia. Uh, it, it's just, it's astonishing. It's just mind blowing. You really have to see it, uh, to believe it. I, I've been, of course, to the National Air and Space Museum. I was disappointed that the one on the mall was, was, was closed. Uh, and this was sort of a, you know, a consolation prize we thought, but it was even better. It, it was just, just astonishing. There's an IMAX theater there. You can see some really cool stuff. But check it out. It's uh it's a little off the beaten path. It's in Chantilly, Virginia. Um, anyway, Chong, thanks thanks again, man. And uh sorry to keep you up so late. Happy to do it. Yeah, well, uh we will talk to you again real soon, man. Thank you. The Seneca podcast is powered by Sub China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.